appreciate those kind words, Tony. Um, I want to say, uh, before we begin, thank you to the elders for inviting me, and for Tony as well, uh, for inviting me to come to speak to you again. It has been several times over the year, and we really have appreciated so much being to, able to get to, to know you all and to be with you some. Um, it's like he said, you know, we kind of go back really 20 years here, don't we? When we first started going to Thailand in 1995, when the work was under the oversight of the eldership here. And uh, Lynn and I have a lot of respect, a lot of love for this congregation and for Tony and Coretta as well. And we're thankful for this opportunity. I hope you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 19. That's where we're going to be in at least the first half of the lesson tonight. Matthew chapter 19. Uh, the subject that's been given to me tonight is perversion of marriage. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Before we do that, we need to look at God's design for marriage. And that's what we're going to be doing in the first half of the lesson. And then we're going to look at how marriage has been perverted by so many, not only in our society, but also really throughout the world. It was March of last year in England where 47-year-old Amanda Rogers married her dog, Sheba. No joke. This is the truth. She did it in Croatia in front of more than 200 guests. When she asked why she married her dog, listen to what she said. She said, I knew that we were meant to be since the dog was two weeks old. You heard it right. That's what she said. She went on further to say that she learned the true meaning of marriage when she divorced her husband and married her dog. Last year, there was a young lady in our congregation who had grown up at Walnut Grove, and when she graduated, she moved to a town near us and started living with a fellow. No marriage at all. Even though she had been raised and taught differently, even though it brought some shame upon her parents, she did it anyway. A week ago on Friday, it was the Supreme Court who decided that same-sex marriage would be legal in all 50 states of our country. I've used these three examples just to kind of begin the lesson tonight because all three of these represent a perversion of marriage, especially the marriage relationship that is given to us by God. In Acts chapter 5, I think it's so interesting when the apostles, the Bible says they were at Solomon's porch and they were having a, a lot of success and they were performing miracles and keep, people were coming to the Lord and the high priest got jealous and he took them and he put them in prison. But that night an angel of the Lord released them from prison and he said, you know, you go and stand in the temple and preach to the people the words of life. The Bible says that the apostles did that once again. But it says the next day when the officers came to get them out of prison, they weren't there and they couldn't find them. But somebody evidently noticed that they were preaching in the temple once again. So the high priest had them brought before the council, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. And the high priest says, you know, we strictly forbade, forbade you not to teach in this man's name, but you've gone and you filled Jerusalem with all of the, uh, the you filled Jerusalem with this doctrine, pardon me, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon our hands. You know what Peter and the other apostles answered? They said, we ought to obey God rather than man. And I have a feeling that passage could apply to every single one of the topics that y'all were having in this particular Sunday night series. It certainly applies to this topic tonight. It applies to issues of salvation. It applies to issues of worship. It applies to issues of roles in the home. It applies to so many issues in the church. And let's also remember that it applies to issues relating to marriage. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. 
Hopefully tonight we'll have a dual purpose. Number one, we want to learn what constitutes marriage as it is designed by God. Number two, we want to be able to recognize and to reject those models of marriage that are perversions of God's plan. Does that sound good? Let's do it. Matthew chapter 19 beginning in verse 3. Look at verse, verses 3 and 4. It says, The Pharisees came also to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now this is the Pharisees testing Jesus. Notice what he says. He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, uh, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Let's go ahead and read 6. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. So the first thing that we're looking at here is we're looking at this proper marriage model given to us by God in Matthew chapter 19 verses 3 through 6. And I want you to notice these six things that we have up on the screen tonight that come directly from that text. Number one, marriage is based on scripture. How do we know that? Verse 4, Jesus began by saying, have you not read Now, when Jesus said that, he was talking about the old law. And obviously, he was talking about Genesis 2. But he's saying here that marriage is based on what we read in the Scriptures, in the Word of God. It's not based on what our family does. It's not based upon how our our friends feel. It's not based on what we think is going to make us happy or not. And it's not based upon what's common law in the land. It's based upon Scripture. You know, the laws of the land allow many kinds of marriages, and I'm convinced we're going to have even more that's going to be coming up due to the ruling uh, Friday a week ago. But we need to understand that God certainly does not allow all these different kinds of marriages that are popping up all over the country. He doesn't. Everything that we need to know about marriage is found in Scripture. If we have a question of marriage, then what we need to do, instead of just looking around in the world or talking to our friends and neighbors, we need to go back to the book. We need to go back and see what God said about it and see what Jesus said about it and then follow what they said and then we'll know we'll have the truth, right? I'm convinced that we need to also teach our children to do just that because our children need to know. They really do. We don't need to depend upon on Bible classes to teach them even though hopefully we're teaching that in our Bible classes and teaching that I know Tony is in the pulpit. But we need to make sure that we personally teach them that, that they get that from us coming from the Word of God and directing them to the Word of God. Number one, marriage is based on Scripture. Number two, marriage is designed by God. Now, interesting because Jesus says, have you not read that He who made them at the beginning? What's the beginning? The beginning is creation. Who are those who were made? Well, it was Adam and Eve, our first parents, the first two that were made. Who is it that was doing the making? Well, it was God. All you've got to do is turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and you have it there word for word, don't you? Well, he who made them at the beginning tells us that marriage is designed by God. It's not designed by the U.S. government. It's not designed by the President of the United States. It's not designed really by any state. It's not designed by any law in our country. It's not designed by Islamic law. Islamic law says that you can have up to four wives, but only the first one would be recognized by God, right? Jesus said that the design for marriage was made at the beginning by He who made them. And obviously that was God making Adam and Eve. By the way, this also applies to non-Christians as well because they're accountable to the law of Christ just like we are, right? 
But where did, where did this design come from? Where do we find the origin of it? Is it Jesus or is it God? I would suggest to you that it's both. In fact, in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, he talks here, or excuse me, Matthew 19 and verse 4 and 5 that we've just read, talking about how God did that. Um, Jesus was quoting Genesis chapter 2, obviously saying that God made man and that God made marriage. And he was reaffirming what we find back in Genesis chapter 2 when the Bible talks about God designing marriage. Number three, I want to suggest to you from this text that we learn that marriage is between a man and a woman. He says he made them male and female. God made them that way, and he made them that way for a purpose. And that, that's where the marriage relationship uh, is designed, is to fit male and female. He designed marriage that way. You know, we need to use these teachable moments just like this to teach our children. We need to let them know, you know, this is how God designed us as human beings. He designed us as male and female, and that's where, that's where he gave us that first marriage law. I would suggest to you, just in reading of the text, that marriage is a process. It's a process. According to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 in the creation, Jesus said that a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. That word joined there in the original means to be glued together. It means to be adhered to. You've all probably glued something together before, and when you get it glued together, you can't just pull it right apart. Well, that's what this word is signifying. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. I don't know how many couples that I have had in counseling that this is one of the major issues. Some don't want to leave mama. Some don't want to leave daddy. Some don't want to join themselves fully to their husband or to their wife in the marriage relationship. Folks, we can't do that and be right with God. You know, we have our role responsibilities according to Ephesians chapter 5, and God expects us to fulfill them. Marriage is based on Scripture. It's designed by God. It's between a man and a woman. Number four, marriage is a union. Notice that. Marriage is a union. Jesus said in verse the end of verse 5, and the first part of verse 6, he says, The two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Folks, I don't mind telling you, I have seen couples, when they get married, he has his thing that he does and she has her thing that she does. They both work different jobs in different places. They barely even see each other except when they go to bed at night. And then they wonder why they have marriage problems. When they're going their separate ways. We're not supposed to go our separate ways. We're supposed to come together in the marriage relationship. Some people do that and they, they never see it coming. They never see that they have a marriage problem until it's too late. You know, that's really not a union, is it? That's an acquaintance. And I want to suggest to you tonight, brethren, that you can't build a marriage on a casual acquaintance. You just can't do it because marriage is a union. That's why in the wedding ceremony sometimes we have what's called a unity candle. You know, we have the candle on one side representing the male and we have the candle on the other side representing the female. We have the candle in the middle that hasn't been lit yet. And then the two of them take their candles and they blow that, those candles out, signifying that they're putting their single life, they're putting their life before them behind themselves. They're lighting that middle candle themselves, showing that they are now a union in the sight of God. It's a wonderful analogy. And it fits perfectly with what Jesus is telling us here in this text and what God is telling us in the creation text as well. 
So young people, one of the things that we need to realize tonight is that marriage is built on a union between a man, his wife, and God. And I would suggest to you that both of the mates in that relationship, that they're both responsible for two different people. The man is responsible to his wife. He's also responsible to God. The woman is responsible to her husband. She's also responsible to God. Marriage is a union. Number five, marriage is a union that's made by God. Jesus said in that passage what God has joined together. Interestingly enough, that word in the original means to glue and to fasten firmly together. Like you're gluing something. I've done this at home. I've glued something together and I'll put a clamp on it so it'll just hold it real tight. And then when you take that clamp off, you can't get it apart. Well, that's what we're seeing here uh, once again in this text. I want to suggest to you that the one who is doing the ceremony does not join the couples. And I try to make that point when I do a wedding or at least in teaching before that. It's God who does the joining. We're simply performing ceremonies, right, Tony? It's God who does the joining in the marriage relationship. So in that sense, it is true that marriages really are made in heaven because God is the one that's joining those two people who are coming together in that ceremony. You know, people all over the world are entering relationships, many of which God has not joined them together. But we need to realize that only God can join two people in marriage and only God can dissolve that marriage. Many people are trying to have it dissolved for various reasons. God says there's only one. And we see it right here in the text a little bit later. I think it's interesting, Brother J.W. McGarvey in his fourfold gospel, page 539, listen to the statement that he makes about marriage. He says, Jesus draws the conclusion that no man or body of men, whether acting in private, civil, or ecclesiastical capacity, can dissolve marriage otherwise than according to the decrees of God. Amen? That's an amen, isn't it? And it's that way about the joining of two in marriage. It's that way about the separation of that marriage. Only God is the one who can determine that. Number six, I want to suggest to you that marriage is a union that is meant for a lifetime. That's what we see in verse six, by the way. Jesus says concerning this marriage, let not man separate. By the way, in the original language, that word means to divide. It means to part. It means to put asunder. And some translations have it that way. But in the text, God says, or Jesus says, do not separate what God has joined. I want to suggest to you that we should not allow any man or any woman outside of our relationship separate us in our marriages. Nor should either one of us in our relationships separate ourselves from our marriage partner. Unless, of course, it's for the reason that God gives us. Interestingly enough, Brother Earl Edwards in his book, Protecting Our Blind Side, page 68, says this. He says, the fact that a civil judge says divorce granted means nothing if the divorce is not based upon what God's word teaches. Did you hear that? He said, the fact that a civil judge says divorce granted means nothing if divorce is not based upon what God's word teaches about this God-originated institution. You see, God's plan, according to Romans chapter 7, verse 2, is for a woman to be married to her husband as long as he lives. The same goes for the husband as well. Now, that's marriage as God has defined it. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 2. That's what we see Jesus reaffirming here in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. Now, let's think about maybe a perverted marriage. We've already talked about a proper marriage, the one that God ordains. Let's talk about a perverted marriage. 
Merriam-Webster in their dictionary defines perversion in two different ways. Listen to this. The first one, they say that perversion is sexual behavior that people think is not normal or natural. I'm not interested in that definition. You know why? Because it's based on what people think. And we're not interested in what people think. We're interested in what God thinks. Listen to this second definition, however, of the word perversion. It's something that improperly changes something that is good. Now that fits what we're talking about, doesn't it? You see, God has given us the good model. He's given us the good design for marriage. He's given us the only design that He will accept. But now there are some people in our country and in the world that are doing some things to improperly change that good marriage relationship that God has given us. So let's think about this perversion of marriage. And let's be reminded, first of all, there is an unperverted model, and it's the one in Genesis chapter 2, God's design, one man and one woman together for life. Jesus said the same thing, Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 and following. The first model we want to look at on the screen up there is polygamy. Polygamy. Polygamy means that you're married to more than one person at the same time. You know, it's interesting. I've heard people say sometimes that they can't believe that that goes on in our society today as if it's a new thing. It's not a new thing. And those of you who've read your Old Testament, you know that it's not a new thing. In fact, I'm convinced that polygamy historically is the first perversion of marriage that that we have seen in Scripture. You think about it. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 19, Genesis 4, the first four chapters of the Bible, in that fourth chapter it says this about Lamech. It says, Then Lamech took for himself two wives. What's that? That's polygamy. We call it bigamy, but it's the same thing. It's polygamy. You're having more than one wife. Abraham had two wives, uh, Sarah and Hagar, Genesis chapter 16 and verse 3. We know that David had eight wives and ten concubines. We know that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. All of that we see in the Old Testament. Polygamy is nothing new. It really is not. It seems evident to me that at least God allowed that in the Old Testament, maybe as he'd allowed some divorce as we see back in Matthew 19, also in the Old Law as well. But Jesus reaffirms God's original plan in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus did not allow it. Last Monday, I guess it was, the Associated Press had a news flash about a man named Nathan Collier. He lives in Helen, Montana, and he applied for a marriage license for his second wife. Not that he had had a wife and divorced her and married another one, but he had a wife and he had a minister do a ceremony to where he had two wives and he wanted that to be legal. You know what he said about that? He says, you can't have marriage equality without legalizing polygamy. And I think our courts are going to have that fight on their hands because he's exactly right. You know, if you're talking about marriage equality in our country for people, for everybody, why not polygamy? I mean, if you can do same-sex marriage, why not polygamy? Well, I want to suggest to you that really we've had polygamy in our country all along. People who are divorcing and remarrying who don't have the right to do it. It's called serial polygamy. It's when a man is with his wife and that marriage is ordained by God and he's decided he just doesn't want her anymore, so he just puts that marriage aside and he goes and takes another wife. That's two wives. God has him bound to that first one, and he's taking the second one. Some people do that over and over and over and over and over again. Polygamy, one perverted model. Another perverted model, the one I've already mentioned, is same-sex marriage. I think it's interesting, Pew Research 
um, had some information out about this back in May, I guess it was, May or June. And they said that the support for same-sex marriage was rising in our country from 37% in 2009 to 57% in 2015. That says a lot, doesn't it? And then we had, a week ago Friday, we had the sanctioning of same-sex marriage by the Supreme Court that made it legal in the United States. Did you hear that? They made it legal in all 50 states in the United States. However, we need to understand that it is still illegal for all mankind according to God's Word. It's still illegal. It doesn't matter what they say in the country. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. It's still illegal in the sight of God. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4, we've already looked at. God said one man and one woman for life. The only exception to that is divorce for fornication. That's what the text says. That's not my version or Tony's version or anybody else's version. It's not your elder's version. It's Jesus' version. You know, I'm convinced that God does not allow same-sex marriage and that it's sinful. And that's why he doesn't allow it, because it's sinful. That wasn't his design. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, we know it's a sin. Paul there is talking to the Corinthians, and they had been really sinful people living in Corinth in that seaport city. They had really been sinful people, and he names two of them. He says some of them are homosexuals, some of them are sodomites. But he said, now you have been washed. Talking about being washed by the blood of Jesus. Being washed in baptism, having that sin washed away. But he lists that whole category of sins, and he lists those two. Well, that's what you see in same-sex marriage, isn't it? So obviously God does not allow that. He's given us the model, and he calls that sin what they do, so obviously he would not join those two in marriage. A third one that I want to mention is a perversion of marriage is cohabitation. You know, some people think that's new. Some people think that this is some new fad that we have in our country where our young people are getting together and they're just living together and they're not being married. They're not going through a marriage ceremony so that they can be properly married or legally married. And some people think that's new, but it's not. By the way, cohabitation is rejection of marriage altogether. It is. It's people living together without the approval of God, and that's sin every time when you're talking about a sexual relationship between two people. In John chapter 4, Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, and in verse 18, he had already asked her to go and call her husband, and she said, you know, I don't have a husband. He said, well, you've said correctly that you don't have a husband, so you've had five husbands, and the man that you're living with now is not your husband. I would suggest to you that's cohabitation, is it not? It is. It's a man and woman living together without being married, enjoying the relationship that God says that they can't. The Center for Disease Control in 2013 put out a report for the National Health Statistics. Listen to what it said. In 1995, 34% of women cohabited with a partner in their first union. Did you hear that? 34% in 1995 of the women. In another study, a few years later, in 2006 to 2010, there were more than 12,000 women who were interviewed. 48% of women interviewed cohabited with a partner in their first union. But listen to this stat. Listen to this. In that same report, they said that 70% of women who had less than a high school diploma cohabited. You know what that's saying? That's saying 70% of our high school girls or even junior high girls cohabiting, living together without the marriage relationship. 
Perversions of marriage. Those are three I wanted us to think about and what time we have left I want us to think about some application. Basically three points. First, a biblically based marriage a biblically based marriage is the only place where God approves of a sexual relationship between two people. That's it. That's it. A biblically based marriage. We need to get that, don't we? We need to understand that. We need to teach it to our children big time that that's what God expects because that's the only thing that God will accept. You know, just because the civil law allows it doesn't mean that God allows it. Civil law is human law. Civil law is not God's law. We need to get that too. We need to get it that just because our country says we can do something does not mean we can do it because it's not right in the sight of God. The point is that every marriage has to be judged by whether God joins the people or not. It doesn't matter what people do under the civil law. It matters whether or not God joins them. If God joins them, then it's scriptural. If he does not, it's unscriptural. And that's the defining point, is it not? Isn't that the defining point with all of these marriage problems that seem to come up with elders and preachers and all of us all the time? That seems to me to be the point that defines the whole situation. Marriage done by civil laws is only right when it complies with God's laws of marriage that we see in Genesis 2 and Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7 and a few other passages. Application number two. The problem often arises when you have problems in a marriage that the mates will go to secular counsels and counselors and legal experts. I'm convinced they need to come to the elders. I tell you what, folks, you can go to a secular counselor, you can go to a secular expert, and you can get just about anything you want ordained from them. But just because they do it and say it's okay doesn't mean that it is. It ought to be taken before elders of the congregation. You know, that's one of the reasons that I got my degree in marriage and family therapy. I was sending people in our congregation to another area to get counseling, and I was not confident in those people who were doing the counseling. didn't have any other choice at the time. And that's the reason I got the degree. And now I counsel them according to what the Bible says. Yeah, we use counseling principles, but we look at what the Bible says first and foremost. And all of us must do that to be pleasing to God. It ought to be taken before the elders of the congregation. I'm convinced that if God's law supersedes man's law, then heaven's court supersedes the Supreme Court. Amen? Application number three. When God's design for marriage and the sexual relationship is not honored, there is a plethora of problems that will arise. And we see it in congregations all the time, don't we? For example, society breaks down at its core and pushes things like easy divorce and same-sex marriages and, and things like that, things that we're going to be seeing more of. Furthermore, the family breaks down. The husbands and the wives don't fulfill their godly roles, and as a result, not only do they suffer, but the children suffer as well. Furthermore, children are no longer blessed with the proper role models in the marriage relationship and in the family to train them to properly form godly relationships themselves. Also, the church is flooded with these so many marriage and family problems that looks just like what we see outside the walls here in the world. shouldn't be that way. shouldn't be that way. I see it in counseling all the time. It breaks my heart to see this very problem happen in generation after generation in people that I counsel. Well, you know, my mom and daddy did this. You know, my grandmom and my granddaddy did this. 
Yeah, but does God allow it? That's the question. Can they be right with God in doing that? And there's a lot of teaching that has to go on in situations like that. Let me conclude by saying this. While our country and even some in the church are participating in worldly arrangements to live together in various ways, we've got to remember Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than man because it's God whom we seek to please, isn't it? It's God who we're going to be standing for on the day of judgment at the judgment seat of Christ so that we can receive the things that we've done in our bodies, whether it be good or bad. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5 and 10. And if we know that we're accountable to God, it seems like we ought to have this motto, we must obey God rather than man. It doesn't matter how people use the laws of the land to get what they want. God's law supersedes their law. It supersedes our Constitution. It really does. I'm convinced that next to our relationship with God, the most important relationship that we have is with our husband or with our wife. The reason I say that is because that's going to have a lot to do with whether you're encouraged to go to heaven or not. And I try to get that point across to young people when they're getting ready to get married. You know, you need to make sure that this is the person that you need to marry that's going to help you get to heaven. Because if they're not, you don't need to marry them. No matter how much you think you like them, no matter how much you think you love them, if you think they're going to keep you out of heaven, boy, you need to turn and run the other way as fast as you can. Our greatest goal in life is to go to heaven, isn't it? I know God requires us to do a lot of things in the marriage relationship, in the home, and pleasing our parents, and pleasing our family, and things like that. But when it comes right down to it, we have to make sure that we please God over all. Because God is the one who can give us heaven. Our parents can't. Our mates can't. And our children can't. Only God can do that. It may be that you do not have the hope of heaven in your heart tonight because maybe you're in a wrong relationship. Maybe you need to get outside of that relationship. Maybe you need to come and confess that tonight and have Tony or have the elders or somebody in the church pray for you to give you strength and give you courage and do what you need to do. It may be that you've never become a child of God and you know that you have to believe in Jesus and repent and turn from those past sins. Uh, confess that Jesus is the Son of God to be baptize into him for the remission of your sins because that's where we contact his blood is in, in baptism. Boy, you could do that tonight and you could come out of the waters of baptism and you could be clean and pure and white as snow. It may be that you're a child of God here tonight and you have sin in your life and you know that you're not heaven bound because you know you can't go to heaven with your sin. It may be it's something that that you've tried to give up and you're having a hard time giving it up and you just keep repeating that sin. Maybe it's something you're addicted to that you need to get help with. The brethren here can help you with that. It may be that it's a sin that you just need to make sure that, that you go home tonight or you do it even before you leave. You need to pray to God to forgive you because God's the only one that knows about it other than you. That's a way to handle something like that. But it may be, it may be that you've done something in a public manner and it needs a public response. And if that's the case... We're going to sing the song of invitation. If you're subject to the invitation, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?